Let's open our Bibles, please, to the 15th Psalm. What to do with continuous fellowship with God, based on a perfect fellowship, and that is the, the, the Lord Himself with the Father. Lord, who shall abide in Thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in Thy holy hill? You have the question asked in verse 1, and then you have the question answered down in verse 2 and on down in several verses. And in several ways it's answered negatively, and then it's uh, also uh, answered in a uh, positive way first and negatively, and then it shows his attitude and uh, various other things about the one that will dwell in the house of the Lord. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, the question is not one of salvation, but fellowship. And as we've already remarked, Jesus is the only one that can truly meet all the qualifications of abiding in the tabernacle of God and dwelling in this holy hill. And only you and I, because we're in him and we're going to be conformed and are being conformed day by day to the image of Christ through the uh, word of God and the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And the question here is not one of salvation, but of fellowship. And we're saved by grace, and that rests on what Christ did for us. That grace rests upon Jesus and upon what he's done for us. And continuous fellowship with the Lord depends upon how we live as Christians. Uh, the only man who ever did always those things that pleased the Father was the Lord Jesus. In the book of John, chapter 8, and verse 29 John's Gospel 8, verse 29 says this, And he that sent me is with me, and the Father the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Can you imagine someone doing always those things which please him? We try to do those things that please the Father, and we only do them occasionally, or as once in a while, or as we try, and then sometimes even in trying we fail. But Jesus could say, I do always those things which please the Father. Oh, none of us come up to the divine standard. We must keep trying. We must always try and strive to be. Uh, James 3, verse 2 says, In many things we offend all, and we do. And, but Matthew 5, verse 48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You know, a lot of people have wrested this out of its proper setting. Uh, let me read a few verses before. In Matthew 5, verse 46, For if you love them, Jesus said, Now listen, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? So if you love people that love you, you haven't done anything special, have you? Even the publicans do that. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? In loving those that love you, there is no evidence of a superior principle. But notice what it says. Do not even the publican so. In verse 48, be ye therefore, in other words, therefore, perfect or complete or mature in the principle that's laid down here, the principle of love. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Some people have taken this to be sinless perfection or being so perfect and good that you're compared to the Lord. But he's talking about having the same principle and the same desire of loving others that are unlovely. And that's what the Lord expects. Be ye therefore. The word therefore connects you with this principle of love. So you must keep it in the context. It's a kind of excellence which uh, distinguishes the Lord's disciples from others. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. 
And so we find that uh, we're talking about fellowship with God, and we know Jesus is the one that has that perfect fellowship. Look at that question again. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And then the answer, that's the question that is asked. Now, the question that that is answered, there are three things in verse 2. Look at it. It says, He that walketh uprightly, that's one thing, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Now, here's the question answered. We must walk right or live right. Walking in newness of life. These children that were baptized this morning. In Romans 6, verse 4, it says, Even though... Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And they've been baptized. they put their faith and trust in Jesus for their soul's salvation. They've taken the first step of obedience by being baptized uh, according to the Scriptures. And then now they're to walk in a new, in a Christian life. And so we must walk right. And not only does the Lord walk right, and always did, but He teaches us we should follow His example. He that walketh uprightly, and we must do right, and worketh righteousness. Look at the next statement. Worketh righteousness. In other words, to do right. The Bible tells us that whosoever doth not bear his cross, Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty seven, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We must do right. Doeth righteousness. Worketh righteousness. We're talking about Christian works. We find it in John chapter 15 and verse 2. Jesus said, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So, we're talking about working righteousness and doing right. The Lord will purge those branches and make them to bear more fruit. And then we must talk right. Look at this. And speaketh the truth in his heart. Notice it's from within that we need to speak the truth. And we, if we speak the truth from within, we're encouraged to speak the truth without as well. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 25, Wherefore, put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Put away lying and speak every man truth with his neighbor. You know, truth is something hard to maintain. We're always a little afraid to speak the truth because we fear if we're out forthwith and truthful, that it might hurt someone's feelings, or that, you know, uh, naturally truth gets to ourselves as well as others, doesn't it? Truth really does something to us, because if some people speak the truth about us, that we're not as important as we thought we were, or maybe we've done not as good as we thought we should have done. But speaking the truth always pays. We're not always uh, real anxious to do it. We sometimes rather be silent, especially... Or as we taught in the last psalm, I believe, where we spoke of flattering people. And God is not the author of flattery either, is he? And then we find in verse 3 some negative qualifications. We saw what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to walk uprightly as Jesus would have us do, and as he did, and work righteously and speak the truth in his heart. But then in verse 3, we have the negative side of it. Here's what we should not do. He that backbiteth not with his tongue. That's not... Speak evil of those that are absent from his presence. Paul speaks of tattlers and busybodies. Speaking things which they ought not. First Timothy 5 verse 13. In Leviticus 19. Let me see if I can find it. Leviticus 19 verse 16. Thou shalt not go up and down as a tail bearer among thy people. 
Thou shalt not go up and down. There are some people that just compass land and sea to spread gossip. They, I mean, they just have to have to have it. Some way or another, they got to talk about somebody. I always find it more pleasant to try to speak good about someone. And I find it more pleasant if we don't have to get in an argument about who's good and who's bad. And you know what this fellow did or what this one didn't do. He must not speak evil of those that are not in his presence. And he must not harm his neighbor. Look, in the same verse it says, He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor. Nor doeth evil to his neighbor. And by the way, I'm amazed at how harmonious the scripture is because in that same verse we read in Leviticus 19, verse 16, the first part, Thou shalt not go up and down to as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. Leviticus, Moses puts both of these things in one verse that the psalm puts in the same verse. You know, when I was going to seminary, I was so amazed as I sat under these professors, these godly men, that I just would sit there almost in awe with my mouth open and listen to the things that, that they spoke from the Word of God and how harmonious and how altogether a spiritual and wonderful the, the book of God is. The Word of God is a spiritual book. And it's living. And they would unfold certain truths from the Bible. And here you find the same thing coming out again nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Look at that. He must not be uh, quick to spread tales that will harm his neighbor. Taketh up a a reproach against his neighbor. In Proverbs 11, verse 3, it says this, A tale-bearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Look at that. A tale-bearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you're trying to cover up everything, but it means you're not to, to take advantage of, of bearing tales and spreading gossip when you could just be quiet about it and let the other person at least have the advantage of your silence and not just be one provoking trouble, even though it may be true that there is a matter that could uh, come out in the open and would hurt someone else. Why reveal it if it's going to hurt someone else? Sometimes it's more uh, spiritual to be quiet than it is to open our mouths. If we can learn that, you know, in the uh, Corinthians, when Paul was speaking the spiritual people that uh, had certain utterances that they wanted to speak, he says sometimes he said, restrain yourself, hold yourself, take care of you. In other words, keep your feelings inside unless you really have something to say and the opportunity to say it. The Bible says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. So, we're talking about negative qualifications. Then notice his attitude, beginning in verse 4. It says, In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. Toward evil persons, what? They're despised. Let me read Psalm 10. If you turn back just a page probably in your Bible, maybe on the same page in your Bible. But Psalm 10, verse 3 says this, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. We don't, to, we don't want to bless those that God abhorreth. It says in our psalm, always hold your place where we're studying, so I won't have to refer you back to it, because we go down verse by verse, and it says, But he that in whose eyes a vile person, this is uh, Psalm 15, verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. 
And then the next statement, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. What does he do? Toward God-fearing men, he, he renders honor. Those that fear the Lord. Remember, Paul said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Or Jesus said that. And then, uh, then uh, Paul said uh, concerning uh, trying to do good to others, he says, render therefore to all their dues. Romans 13, verse 7. And he says, tribute to whom tribute is, is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And so we need to learn to, to toward God-fearing men, it says, honor them that fear the Lord. The last statement in verse 4 says, He that sweareth to his own herd and changeth not, he keeps his promise even at a loss. Sweareth to his own herd. If you've given your word and, and you're the loser by doing it, you still keep your word. That's something. Jesus swore to his own herd. He he put himself to the cross of Calvary. He said, I will go. I'm, I'm going to lay down my life for the salvation of a lost and sinful world. And he said, I'm going to give myself a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And he looked to the cross that was before him and it was to his own hurt. And yet he kept his word, didn't he? There's nothing could have hindered Jesus. The Bible says he set his face steadfastly or like a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing what was before him. And when you and I make a promise, we ought to keep our word. In Ecclesiastes 5, let me read this for you. Verse 4 says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, <clears throat> defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Not only is it right to, to pay what you vowed to God, but it's also proper to pay that you vow to man. It says, Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. A lot of people want to make the vow, but they don't want to pay or make the agreement, and they don't want to pay. They don't want to live up to it. I'm reminded of Hannah. Remember when Hannah was praying for a man-child? She says, God, if you will give me a man-child, I will return him to thee all the days of his life. Samuel, meaning ask of God. That was his name. And she named him because she had asked for this man-child, this baby boy. And the Bible tells us that when this baby was born and at the proper time, she returned him to the Lord and dedicated him all the days of his life. She kept her vow, didn't she? She kept her word. How many mothers have you heard that have prayed and have not kept their word? How many people, how many men, how many people have prayed or asked God to do something for them, and when God does something, they fail to keep their word. So, it's good to keep your promise, isn't it, and keep your word. I used to have a teacher that said, if you can't pay up, we'll show up, right? And tell why you can't pay up. If you make an agreement with someone and you can't, it's humanly impossible to keep what you have promised to do, well, then show up and, and give a reason why. And let people know that you're trying. And that in due time that you will, will do what you're supposed to do. And then I want you to notice verse 5. He shows his financial dealings. By the way, our time's getting away. His financial dealings. He does not take advantage of his poor brother. Verse 5. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. As unto a stranger thou, thou mayest lend uh, upon usury, but unto thy uh, brother thou shalt not. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 20. In Exodus 22, let me read a couple of verses. Exodus 22, <clears throat> verse 25, it says, 
If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down. You see, God is a just God. He doesn't permit people to do all these things that a lot of people try to get by with nowadays. So, we are not to take advantage of a poor brother. How many times have you seen people that when someone's down, they'll just take complete advantage of them? That's the dirtiest and awfulest thing to do. That brother that's down or in need or needs help, that's the one you need to lift up. Not to put him down more. You need to lift him up. He needs your love and your help and, and your, your mercy and your potential help maybe sometimes or whatever it may be, physical. And then it says he, you're not to accept a bribe. It says in verse 5 again, He that doeth these things shall uh, nor take reward against the innocent. That will include accepting a bribe, taking a reward against the innocent. Psalm 26, verse 10 says, In whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. And then we're to be steadfast as Christians, as Jesus has always been steadfast. Notice verse 5 again, the last statement. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Do you wonder how to be steadfast? He will be a steadfast Christian who meets these qualifications, and you can only meet them as your uh, as you are in Christ and as you follow the things of the Lord. Because you can't do these things of yourself. You have to be spirit-led and guided by His Word and realize that, that it's by the grace of God that you can perform or do these things and be conformed to the image of Christ. The Bible says, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now let's come to the next psalm. The 16th Psalm. We have about 20 minutes on this one. The 16th Psalm. And by the way, this is a Messianic Psalm. And we find it to be proven to be. Uh, we will read uh, some statements later on that will prove to be concerning Jesus. In fact, it might be well if we turn to the proof, first of all. In the book of Acts, twice over, Peter and Paul both speak concerning this psalm, and I'll just read this portion when we get down to it, you'll see that it's proven to be a psalm about the Lord. In Acts 2, <clears throat> beginning with verse 25, it says, For David uh, speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, that for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to seek corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you. Now, this is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with, with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all 
are witnesses. And so we read only the portion that shows you that this psalm is concerning Christ. Also, Paul, in the, in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning with verse, uh, let's see, let's begin with verse 30 and read the context here. It says, God raised, but God raised him up, raised him from the dead, and he, he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses <clears throat> unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. And by the way, the second one, as well as another psalm. Uh, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now to return no more to corruption, he saith on this wise, I will give thee the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, see that? And this other psalm is the one we're reading and studying. Thou shalt not leave, uh, suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And of course we read as Peter said, Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, neither shalt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. It says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So that psalm is referring to Jesus. And it says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. By the way, I have a sermon on that. Here's a miracle man, speaking of Christ. This man is preached to you, the forgiveness of sins. Here's a miracle message, the forgiveness of sins, and a miracle method, by him all that believe. That's the method. And the miracle measure is this, are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You're justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now then, let's turn back to that psalm, the 16th psalm. We've given you a few verses of Scripture to show that it refers to, to Jesus. And let's take it verse by verse as briefly and as quickly as possible. Uh, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. Now then, Jesus trusted in God, and we're to trust in God. He trusted in God for safety. In Matthew 27, let me read this for you. Matthew 27 and verse 43, they said, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Remember, this was the taunt of the enemies against Jesus as he was on the cross. And they said, Come down from the cross. But they did recognize that he trusted in God. Even the enemy and the unbelieving recognized that you trust in God. If you're a child of God, if you have your faith and trust in God, those may be opposed to you, but they recognize you trust in God. They may not like it. They may want to do you harm, but they recognize you trust in God. And in Psalm 16, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. And in verse 2, he claimed God as his Lord. He, he claimed the Heavenly Father as his Lord. We should claim Christ as our Lord. He says, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee. 
says, Thou art my Lord. And his good work was not to increase God's happiness, but to ours. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth. Christ didn't lay his goodness on the line for the sake of the Father, especially, though he was a whole burnt offering to God. Yet he extended his goodness for the saints that are upon the earth. What Jesus endured in the way of sacrifice was for you and I. We know, well, you read in Ephesians, I believe it's 5 verse 2, where he says that uh, he gave himself a sacrifice for our sins. Let me read this for you. It might be better if I'd read it. And it tells you tells us concerning what Jesus did. In walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, now listen, and hath given himself for us, for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, what is that? He gave himself a sacrifice for our sins, but he also gave himself an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So, for us, it was for a sacrifice for sins. For God, he was a whole burnt offering and a sweet-smelling savor. His dedication and his willingness to offer himself There was not only something in it for us, for our salvation and providing for our forgiveness, but there was something in it for God, is his obedience. You read all the offerings of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, and you'll find the whole whole burnt offering is that which is accepted, acceptable unto God. And you know, as believers, we're told... It says, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, I plead with you, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. If Jesus gave himself totally to the Father as a burnt offering, you and I should give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. You know, I've found out in the few short years that I've been here in this, on this earth that, that it pays to serve God. And you know that it's the most wonderful thing to ask God for the permission to just be called a servant of God. To just be called one of His own that would serve Him. And uh, every time I think of my service, and I know you do too, you think of how far short we have come, any of us. We're not all that we need to be. But by the same token, I know that we, we try and God accepts us as we dedicate ourselves to Him and to doing His will. So He says uh, here in our psalm, Thou art uh, my Lord. This is the last part of verse 2. My goodness extendeth not to thee. Now He was talking in the realm of, of the benefit for the saints, but to the saints that are in the earth. His good work was not in... To increase God's happiness, because God was totally happy, but to increase our happiness. It says, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Remember, his delight was in this. Jesus came and he was delighted to do the will of God. Verse 4, he shows his abhorrence of idols. Look at verse 4. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasteth after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. They that serve others God, other gods, he abhors those that go after other gods. Psalm 32 and verse 10, listen carefully. 
it says this, My sorrow shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. I was talking to Brother David this morning after his little son was baptized. And we were back there dressing in the, in the boy's dressing room. He said that he was so thankful that the Lord had given him all the blessings of life. And he said that he and Angie and the family were trying to keep things as simple as could be. And to try to learn to live with the blessings of God instead of always looking for uh, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <clears throat> You've heard me say many times, a lot of people say, well, when my ship comes in, you know, they're going to have one. Well, I've already said this many times, too. Your ship may already be in. It may be here already. You just don't know it. And if you'll learn to take the blessings that God has given you and be thankful for them, you'll be far better off than looking for that. You know, there's a lot of people always wanting to land the big fish when they let a thousand little ones go that are just good. They're all around you. God is just giving out His blessings right and left. And what do we do? We want that one great humongous pot of gold or great big uh, catch. And we're not satisfied with what the Lord gives. Paul said in the book of 1 Timothy, let me see if I can find it, chapter 6, <clears throat> he says in verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Listen, they suppose that. From such turn away, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. We will leave all this world's goods behind when we, when we go, will we not? And it says, in having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. What a lesson. If we'd listen to God's word, we wouldn't be half as much worriers as we are, would we? You know what the word worry means? It means to wear away by friction. It's just, have you ever seen someone just take a rock and rub it on another rock? Or how... Uh, they make the, uh, the, the corn by grinding it in the rock there, the meal. Well, we just wear away by friction. And that's what it is to worry. You just keep rubbing. And sometimes our troubles and our worries and our lives are that way. They're just a life full of friction. And we're just wearing ourselves away. For what? For what? One of these days, we're all going to leave everything of this world behind and we're going to be with the Lord, which is far better, as Paul said. He said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, having food and raiment there, let us learn therewith to be content. Let's go on with our psalm. Hold your place where we're studying. And now we're down to verse uh, uh, 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and my cup, and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Look at that. Not only was that true concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, his inheritance uh, of the saints. In fact, if you read that second psalm, it says, second psalm, in verse 8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. See that? Even the heathen world that come to believe on Christ are his inheritance. And... Uh, God's people are his inheritance. You and I are his inheritance. Uh, Paul speaks of it in Ephesians, says his inheritance in the saints. <clears throat> we speak of our inheritance in the Lord. In 1 Peter, it says that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith and salvation, 
ready to be revealed in the last day. But then in Ephesians it says that we are his inheritance. Let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter 1. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read verse 18 19. 18 through 20. Uh, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the, of the glory, look, of his inheritance in the saints. It doesn't say what is the riches of the glory of our inheritance in God, but of his inheritance in the saints. To please you that you and I mean as much of an inheritance to God as God's inheritance is to us, and he glories in his inheritance in the saints. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe, in the book of Exodus, that Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. All them out of the wilderness and out of sin and out of bondage. And he says, they are his inheritance and we are his inheritance. I never could realize I knew always that God's inheritance for me was great. But I never thought about the fact that, that we are something to God as well in the fact that we are his inheritance. He says, they belong to me. I have a rich inheritance. Every child of God is mine. Says, all things were created for him and by him and for him. It tells in the book of Revelation that for his pleasure they are and were created. And that means you and I includes us. Okay, back to this. Let's get uh, further down in Psalm 16. It says in verse 5, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. The lines, when they were dividing the land of Canaan, the lines or their boundaries were falling pleasant places. You know, it was not on Rattlesnake Cliff or somewhere. It was out in the valleys where the waters were flowing and the green grass was growing. The lines are falling in pleasant places. That's what the Lord's inheritance is to us. And then it says in verse uh, uh, 7, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instructed me in the night seasons. So here's one that's satisfied with God's plan for his life. The Bible tells us of contentment that we've already spoken of. But Jesus speaks of the fact that he is made for the purpose of serving God. In Hebrews 10, verse 7, it says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Talking about? He said, I will bless the Lord who had... Uh, given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. God has given us counsel and instructions. We've received instructions from God. In the book of John, let me read a scripture for you. Again, in John chapter 8, verse 28, it says, Then said Jesus unto them, When, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. He says, then shall you know. There's coming a time that if we follow the Lord closely enough and receive his instructions and his counsel, then we come to knowledge. We shall know. Okay, Psalm 16 again now. In verse 8, now we come to the scripture that we read the first two places in the book of Acts that apply to the Lord. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. He's always conscious of the Lord's presence. Jesus was conscious of the Lord's presence. Jesus was conscious of God's presence even in the, in the grave. When he said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, he was put to death in the flesh, <clears throat> but quickened by the Spirit. And the Bible says that it was not possible that he should be holden of this death. And he... I uh, said, 
I have set the Lord always before my before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. So now I need to be conscious of God's presence. And Jesus knew that the grave was not the end of his hope. Look in verse 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. Jesus died and was buried, but his flesh saw no corruption. Because he was life eternal. John says, and uh, John says, we show unto you that that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. If he was eternal life, he could only be put to death in the flesh. But he was quickened by the Spirit. It was not possible that death could hold eternal life. How could death hold eternal life? How can death hold you and I? Because we have eternal life. Jesus has given us eternal life. And when we die, this body is going to see corruption. Not like Jesus' body didn't see corruption, but ours will see corruption. But we're going to leave this body behind and depart to be with the Lord, for to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Have you ever thought about the fact that the person that you see and I see is not this, we see each other physically, but the real man, the real being, the real spiritual man is on the inside. He's within us. He's that person in this tabernacle of clay. This is only the house that we're living in now. But our real person will leave this house behind one of these days, and it will continue on to exist in the presence of God throughout eternity. And that's the glorious thing about being a Christian. And if you didn't believe that, there wouldn't be any reason for you being here tonight. If you didn't believe that, you would have no purpose of ever opening your Bible or ever uttering a prayer to God if you didn't believe in a hereafter and that this body is not all of it and this life is not all of it. The Lord is going to take us up to be with Him in glory. Our time is about gone, but I want to give you this. In verse 11, by the way, we're going to be raptured and taken up to be with the Lord in glory. And uh, I didn't have time to give you all the details I wanted to, but I feel necessity to give you this last verse. It says in verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus knew that in God's presence there was full and complete and eternal pleasure. And you know, if you and I could realize that in God's presence there is that kind of pleasure. There is full and complete and eternal pleasure. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I have four things written down. The quality and the quantity and the constancy and the perpetuity. All of these things are involved. Look at that verse again. We'll close. Thou wilt show me the path of life. Not only life now, but life everlasting. And life in God's presence. In thy presence is fullness of joy. You know, people are looking for joy here. And pleasures here, aren't they? And they're short-lived. Remember uh, Moses spoke of the fact that it says in Hebrews 11, Moses, when he was come to years, listen carefully, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, listen, for a season. All the pleasures of sin are only for a season. And some of those pleasures of sin are for a very short season. But all the pleasures of God are forevermore. You ought to be happy being a Christian. 
Because the joys of, of a Christian life are lasting. They have the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come.